Hello and welcome to episode three of Conversations That Matter, the podcast. My name is Holly Reed, and I will be hosting today's session, which is focused on how and why OTs can be involved in research. With us today, we have Catherine Lambert and Justine Jecker. Catherine is a practicing occupational therapist and first year doctoral student at the University of Alberta studying motor imagery in Parkinson's disease. She carried out research in motor imagery in both healthy and clinical populations during her degree, following which she practiced clinically in an acute care hospital. When returning to do doctoral research in 2020, she realized that her experience working as an occupational therapist gave her a new perspective to her research. Justine Jecker swore that she would never do a PhD after completing her OT studies in 2009. However, in 2015, she enrolled in a PhD program at Lakehead University, focused on education and sorry, focused on education leadership and spent several years working with six First Nation communities who engaged in community action research project. Justine believes that research should not only be reserved for those working in universities and that occupational therapists from any background possess the skills and talent to be both clinicians and researchers. Welcome to you both and I'll move on to my first question. So Catherine and Justine, um, you both believe that OTEs can bring a lot of research to the table and can specifically involve patients and clients as partners in the process. Would you be able to share your experience in how you knew you were needed to engage in future research to reflect the OT landscape? Catherine, did you want me to jump in? So doesn't matter, go for it. So we're, um, it's interesting because at the table, the three of us are, are relatively new on the research journey, the formal research journey. Um, and uh, as Holly said, I've just completed um, my PhD just a couple of years ago. And it's, it's really interesting for me because in 2009, I really felt that I was done with school, um, felt that I needed to move on to really just engaging as an occupational being. And I did that. And I actually relocated to north, Northwestern Ontario from Southern Ontario. And I found that it was very rewarding doing clinical work for the first uh, three, three to four years. And as I tra transitioned from working in a hospital setting to a community setting, I started to feel the research bug. Um, I started to look for uh, working in mental health and working with First Nation communities and also having a history and background in forensic mental health. I was beginning to realize that there wasn't very much information out there that could help me help other people. And so um, between my fourth and sixth year of clinical practice, I really felt that pull to have to get involved in research. And really, if anything, I felt that it was an ethical responsibility to begin to create uh, knowledge, put together knowledge um, that would apply to the people I, I was working with. And it wasn't just an occupational therapy, this really looking at healthcare profession research in First Nation communities, um, allied health, medical, social realms, it seemed very limited. And for me, um, community action research, which is sometimes called participatory action research, uh, community-based research, there's a lot of names for it. Um, this was something that really excited me because it meant that the community itself would be driving the research and I would really kind of be there to facilitate the experience. So, um, yeah, I really I really felt that I was called into doing research as opposed to deciding that I'm, I want to do research. 
And so I come from it from something slightly different perspective of or experience in that I've always loved research. I've always been involved in it, um, particularly so I know Holly mentioned um, that my research is in motor imagery and I've always been really interested in how sort of our motor skills and our cognitive skills interact when we're sort of performing our occupations. And so that's really what led me into um, my research. And I also, you know, my interest in Parkinson's disease was specifically from having a family member who had the disease. And then really thinking about how do these different interactions between motor and cognitive skills impact in Parkinson's specifically. Um, And when I did my master's, I did some research on the side and I always, knew that I wanted to do a PhD. That was something I wanted to do, but it was important to me to sort of take some time. PhDs can be a difficult time. They're very rewarding, but they're also a long period of time. And so I wanted to make sure that that was what I wanted to do. So I took some time off and I worked. And I found that when I came back, I sort of had this different perspective. I was still very interested in that sort of motor and cognitive interaction. And I'm very interested in like, neural activity and neuroimaging and those sorts of things. But I also started to realize um, when looking at the research on motor imagery and this idea that maybe it could be an intervention, maybe imagining movements can um, help people, it's been shown in stroke, can help people to improve their function. Could that work in Parkinson's? But what I started to realize is that there's very, there was pretty much no research looking at what people with Parkinson's disease thought about it. There were some studies on interventions, but there was nothing involved about what people with Parkinson's disease want to do, what their priorities are. And I think I really picked up on that because from my work, all of it is, okay, what is important to you? What is meaningful to you? And I think a lot of clinicians will know from their experience that if you are forcing someone to prioritize something or you're sort of, you have an idea of what their priorities should be, generally the patient or the client is going to be less motivated, which makes sense, right? It's it's not what their priorities are. And so kind of coming with this client-centered lens, I came into research and said, okay, if we're, if we want to look at motor imagery as an intervention down the line, well, what would patients want that to look like? What would, what would they, how would they like to see it? What sort of tasks would they like to imagine? What's important to them? And no one had really asked that. And that was something which, to be honest, I don't think I would have thought about unless I was, had that my experience as an occupational therapist and really looking at what's important to clients. And that's sort of what I started doing with um, some research in my first year, which I never anticipated doing. I always anticipated that I would do this sort of this collection of neural activity and whatnot. And, and my first year ended up really being talking to people with Parkinson's and going, what, what do you want to see? What's important to you? And I'm really happy that I've done that, but it's a completely different lens from how I started. And I think that's something which as an occupational therapist, I really brought to the table was that perspective. Yeah, I do. I think it's interesting that as OTs were, um, I know when I graduated in 2009, you, you chose to become a researcher or you chose to become a clinician. And sometimes there were a few administrative jobs out there, but to be able to marry the two, that's, Catherine, that's really where I see our stories connecting is, you know, getting into practice, experiencing the clinical world, and then also being able to say, hey, you know what, there's other people who should know what's happening here. And I think that 
you know, that's one of the things I, I think that is the conversation that matters here is that um, clinicians need to know that there's an opportunity for research for anyone and that it's not you don't it has it doesn't have to be a life path where you're committed to this forever. Um, but where you can engage with your clients, collect valuable and important information and be able to share that. And one of the things I wanted to share was this idea of what is research, because before I could even dive into the very first thing when you do a PhD is define the research problem. That's what you're told to do. And uh, Wilson, an in ind Indigenous scholar and author, he defines research as a hyphenated term. And it's it's to refine information or knowledge that's been there all along. So you're not creating something out of nothing. You're really just assembling the knowledge that's been there. So being able to know what research is is really important. And I think that for all populations getting involved, it's important that they understand what you mean when you approach them and say, do you want to get involved in research? The, the other thing about the research problem is the, the issue with the word problem, because that, especially for my case, working with Indigenous populations, but even working with any vulnerable po population, when you put those two words together, it can really be a terrifying thing, and it can um, turn a lot of people off of wanting to get involved in research. And uh, there's an author, Smith, um, from New Zealand in 2012 in her publication. She talks about how the research problem is considered a dirty word in Indigenous communities. And so it's interesting to even just start at that point with your client and inviting them to participate in research. And, and, and what do we call it if we're not calling it the research problem? Something that I realized in sort of the past year or so, maybe a little bit longer is, and this might sound a little funny, but sometimes I actually see participating in research as this potential meaningful occupation for people, right? So I can say that from my own perspective of, um, or my own experience of working with people with Parkinson's, a lot of them want to engage in research, right? It's, it's important to some of them, but what, if we look at participation as this meaningful occupation, well, okay, but what can we do to help address those barriers? What are some barriers to people participating? And one of them is going to be, you know, can be based on, you know, certain populations, vulnerable populations where participating in research historically maybe has not been a great thing. And um, it's been forced upon them, for example, these sorts of things where we really need to be mindful of thinking, yes, of what are physical barriers in terms of location, in terms of our rural clients, but also culturally, um, socially, what are some things that we can do to make participation in that occupation um, more accessible to people? And I think that that is something which clinicians are fantastic at because clinicians are the people who are having these conversations with clients on a day-to-day -day basis, right? They are not just talking about research, but having those conversations about important topics, about important occupations, these sorts of things. Um, and so, like you said, we sometimes think that there's the clinician and then there's the scientist, but really, you know, we can add so much to one another. And those conversations that we have every day with our clients can be incredibly informative in a way that I think sometimes 
like I said, I love research. It's something I've always been passionate about, but sometimes there can be a little bit of a focused lens, right? And so I think that clinicians can really broaden that a little bit and go, you know, I think we need to think a little bit more about how we're presenting this, right? Well, how does this look like to certain populations? Do we really want to, again, talk about a research problem? Is that really going to be the best way to approach this? Um, which, and again, I think of that in terms of even working with clients when we talk about problems, right, or impairments, these sorts of things, what sort of language are we using? And it's those clinicians on the front lines who are understanding what works and what doesn't in a way. And one of the things that I guess I've also struggled with is this idea of who owns the knowledge. So, uh, and I still struggle with this. This is not something that I've yet to figure out. But when I started my PhD in 2015, it happened to coincide with the release of Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada and the call, 94 calls to action. And um, knowledge appropriation and the idea of who owns what is obviously a huge component of understanding colonialism and the impact of, you know, settler mentality. And the PhD itself and research itself continues to perpetuate that understanding of, you know, I put my name on it and therefore I own it. And at the end of the day, when even though I completed, I completed a four-year program, there were six First Nation communities involved and we had hundreds, close to over a thousand people who were ultimately involved in some aspect of that research. And I can make as much mention as I want to in my thesis and in the publications I put forward. But that has been an ongoing challenge is that relationship with the client. So not just as a person contributing to the knowledge, but then also being recognized for that contribution explicitly. And I think as occupation occupational therapists, I really like what you said, Catherine, that research, engaging in research is an occupation. And so if we were to look at it that way and recognize those who engage in that occupation, I wonder how we might start to recognize research itself differently. And I mean, who decided anyway in, in colonial mentality that we can't recognize people in research? I mean, one of the things that was truly um, a surprise and, and I had to go through uh, serious uh, REB approval on multiple fronts working with, with so many different communities was this idea around anonymity. Everybody was so concerned about, you know, we can't say this person's name and we have to protect these people. But at the end of the day, the knowledge holders and the spiritual healers of the community came forward and said, we want our name on this. I mean, this is our knowledge. We did this. And so I feel that such an important part of that client um clinician research person connection is not only the engagement in the research itself but everything that that happens post research because as the ones putting our names on it we will forever benefit from from what we've created right what we've created but you know the struggle is is how do we continue to support all those people that participated in the process it makes me think of um this idea of there's kind of this spectrum in terms of the end of research and what we do with the knowledge we've obtained. And sort of at the beginning is this idea of knowledge dissemination, where as a researcher, we maybe publish some articles, we present at a conference, but that's it, right? We do that. And then it's up to the people who it's relevant to, to search it out, which 
why are they going to do that? The average person, right? Like that's all, if they don't know it's there. Also in terms of when we talk about who owns the research, um, if there is, you know, it's not an open access publication. So there's research about the research that is relevant to them, but they can't access it, all of these things. And then on this other side is really this implementation piece. Okay, what can we actually do so that the knowledge that's created is relevant and impactful? And Something that I've learned about sort of in the past couple of years, and I am not an expert on this, I am still learning, we are all still learning and we're all still growing, is this idea of patient partners or engaging patients in research, not just in terms of in the actual research study, but also engaging them as partners on the project and finding out, getting their feedback throughout, but also particularly in terms of that implementation piece. So how can we actually involve the communities so that they get access to the knowledge, so that it's their knowledge as well. It's not just us publishing a paper. And this idea I know of sometimes with um, engaging patient partners, for example, it will be patient partners and with most of them, they're they're paid to be on the research project. This isn't them. They are a respected member of that research team, right? And looking at, okay, what, how can we make this more accessible? How can we make this shared within the community? And a lot of the times that's not the researcher going and presenting something. It's it's the partner, it's the person who's part of that community, who knows how to implement it, who knows how to engage. And it's, but it's like you said, in terms of who, who owns that knowledge, when it's published behind this paywall um, and it's our names on the paper, how do we make it so that it also belongs to the patients? Because again, that research doesn't exist without, without them, like you said, right, or the clients, it doesn't exist without them. And, Figuring out that piece has also been a challenge for me, um, but I love this idea of engaging patient partners throughout or client partners or community partners and involving them. I think what I hope is that research is evolving in a way where we're not just looking at it in our bubble of conferences and publications, but actually looking at the different ways that our research can have an impact and in practical ways, right? But it's very much an involving process, but it is that difference between just disseminating your research and hoping with luck and actually no, taking an active role and engaging people and making sure that that research is there for them. Because I'd like to think that's what so much, a lot of us go into research or engage in research because we want to make a change, right? And that doesn't just mean putting something behind the paywall in my Absolutely, and I like what you said about accessibility. I mean, I, I'm so happy to be living in 2021. When I even think back when I graduated in 2009, you know, having OJOT, the Open Journal for Occupational Therapy, and just immediate instantaneous access to knowledge from academic knowledge, not, not just social media content, but really having that ability for anybody to have access and put information out there. I think that's so incredibly important. I think this the, the walls that have been created historically, again, colonial structures of uh, being able to, you know, who decides wh what is knowledge, who decides what is printed. And then not only that, but your publication itself, you know, your your 400 page dissertation is now a, a six page leaflet in, in a journal. It's it's incredibly challenging to put context and appreciation uh, to all those people who contributed to, to that research. And so it, it is exciting to be living in a time where we can share knowledge so freely. And I know that for me, 
I had the opportunity to work with uh, closely with about a dozen Indigenous scholars, which was really a rewarding experience for me, identifying as non-Indigenous and being able to really learn the difference between Indigenous ways of knowing and non-Indigenous or Western ways of knowing. And what I found was that most of their sources came from either word of mouth, from elders, from books, uh, a lot of books actually, or from other sorts of paper documents, things that we tend to call grey literature that really minimizes the meaning and impact of that information. And I'm just, I guess I'm, when you said that word, what is accessible, you know, what is accessible to our clients, I really feel that this leveling of that research hierarchy is starting to happen with the idea of open journals and clients directly being part of that research and feeling, yes, I was a part of that. My name is on that. Um, I hope we get to a place where you can click on an article and literally see every single person who was involved, because I think that, why aren't we doing that? I, I, that's just a really honest question is, why aren't we acknowledging those that are creating the knowledge? And so um, I think that will maybe bring us one step closer and also start to truly honor that relationship between, you know, client, clinician, researcher and um, research participant. I was thinking about that hierarchy as well, and especially when you mentioned great literature, right? And one thing that I've always thought of is um, like in quantitative research or um, there is that idea of that randomized control trial is like that perfect study, right? And that is that is what you're always going to aim for. And that is something that obviously I've been involved in and know about, but it's something that changed my perspective a little bit in terms of, yes, I absolutely think those sorts of studies can be incredibly beneficial. But sometimes then when you look at from sort of this lens that we bring maybe as occupational therapists as okay but this is not this is not what things are like in the real world right like there is part of our jobs is often like to be flexible right that's what we want to do because we all know that every client every community every patient comes in with their own perspectives and their own priorities and we may have um, I may have two patients in the hospital with the exact same condition and the exact same age and they have completely different priorities they come in with different backgrounds with different values and I do think I've noticed that there does seem to be it's obviously not perfect and I think we need to work on it but absolutely I think there has become this increasing um, acknowledgement that that sort of pragmatic approach as well um, is incredibly important and that's something which I didn't even know about I've been involved in research for a decade, maybe nine years. And I only have recently started to learn about this shift as well in certain trials of, okay, what does this actually look like in practice? What can we do to be flexible? Because yes, a randomized control trial is great, but that is not the only type of knowledge. And that should not be the only type of knowledge that we're publishing because that is, it's this acknowledgement, like you said, of there are different types of knowledge and we have historically prioritized one. And that's not saying that it's not a good type of knowledge, that it's not valuable, but it's not the only one. And I think, again, going back to that perspective of occupational therapy or whatnot is 
we're sort of learned to appreciate these different types of knowledge and to look at different perspectives. And yes, to look at the evidence base, but also to look at the knowledge of our clients and their background and their history. And so I think that that is something which we also bring to the table very much is that in our professions, we prioritize these different types of things and very holistic, right? And I hope research starts to go that way because that's, I mean, that's life, right? I mean, things, the, everything operates in a context, right? And so I really liked what you talked about, though, of this hierarchy of knowledge, right? And why is it that hierarchy? Who created that hierarchy? And why does it have to be that way? It doesn't have to be that way. I don't think so. No, and, and also thinking of research design, and you've raised some amazing points. I'm pretty sure um, I had read during my PhD studies uh, that the in, inventor or creator of the RCT actually predicted that in our lifetime, it's going to become obsolete, that it will no, not only will it no longer be the gold standard, it will actually no longer be used. And one of the things I think that's important to speak to for our listeners and OTs interested in research, but are often scared off is I know when I chose mixed methods as part of my research design and mixed methods action research in particular, it's one of those things that I know when I was a student, you were scared away from. It's like, well, if you can't do quantitative well and you can't do qualitative well, you definitely shouldn't be doing both well. And as an am amateur researcher, this is a scary place to start uh, your research journey. But I think it is the most important place to start your research journey because we, we are learning every day that it is almost impossible to only have quantitative data and in qualitative, it's really dependent on the circumstance. So I think that it should be more known that clinicians can develop those skills to be able to engage in both forms of research. And really, it's a matter of equipping yourself with the, you know, different personalities with different skill sets that can help you carry out that research. Because I really needed a whole team behind me, not just my PhD committee, but another whole team of people who knew what they were doing with in terms of research design. And so, you know, to be able to lead a research project, I think OTs have those inherent skill sets of facilitation, coaching, mentorship, and they might not have all the know-how on the research design itself, but OTs can align themselves with those thinkers um, and to be able to lead OT-led research. And I know that that definitely scared me in the beginning, but now that I've gone through the process, I would definitely encourage OTs who are thinking that they want to do research, but they're scared they don't have the skill set that go for it. You 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 have that skill set built into your OT training. Absolutely. And I would say from my own experience, um, getting that experience as a clinician and continuing to work um, as a clinician in the sort of more on a casual basis now that I'm in a PhD has absolutely been foundational to my skills in comparison to before. And that's particularly in terms of working with other people on the research team, but also working with research participants, because as clinicians, we get that experience again of that coaching, right? Of that encouraging, that empathizing, all of these things. And I think one thing that I would like to think OTs are particularly good at, um, I do think we still, you know, need to work on it. Like a lot of health professions is sometimes there can be this, this power structure, right? This hierarchy of when you are 
both in healthcare when you're the health professional versus the patient, but also in terms of research. You're the researcher and they're the participant. And I think that one thing that occupational therapy can be quite good at is putting that person that you are working with first and centering it around them and finding out, again, what's important to them, but also, again, that encouraging, that empathizing, making them at ease, making them understand that you, how valued their perspective is and their engagement is. Even, even in quantitative research, even in that basic research, there is still, in my opinion, a huge element of making participants comfortable, of making them aware that you know, they're in charge of the session. If they are uncomfortable, if they don't want to participate, anything like that, that's okay. That it, You want to minimize those power structures the best way you can. And I think occupational therapists are really, that client-centered perspective is really important to that. And I think that's something we bring to the table. And I definitely realized doing research now versus when I was in undergrad or even in my master's, that initial work with participants, I brought a whole new perspective to now as a clinician and with my work with them. And then again, like you said, with working with a whole research team, we bring in this problem solving, this flexibility, a huge component of our profession is are those two things, right? As I said, every patient, every client, every community is different. And so because of that, I think we are really good at looking at working with people with different perspectives and discussing and seeing what are those core things that are shared, right? I think that's something that we really bring to the table and we don't realize what a skill that is. Um, and I think that that's something which clinicians might not realize that they bring to the table, which is absolutely fantastic. And also that advocacy piece. I think occupational therapists can be fantastic advocates for the people they're, they're working with. And that's something which is really needed in research too, in my opinion, is that advocacy. Wow, thank you both so much for the insights so far. And it's been really interesting to hear how you came into such different populations and, and different reasons for going into research. And yet there's this undertone of what does it mean to remain client-centered and integrating that into research to be community-centered or patient-centered or research focused on including the participant and the patient in a way that's productive and meaningful for them. Like there's the undertones of the core values of occupational therapy that which you both did such a good job by the sounds of it, bringing into your research as well. So it's it's interesting for me to hear the similarities, even though there's so many differences as well. And I think this will connect with a lot of OTs who, who may integrate that into their clinical practice and have thought of research, but not necessarily in that way. Um, so I'm wondering if to wrap up here, as it's already been 30 minutes or so of this engaging conversation, which is amazing. Um, I'm wondering if you both could touch on in a little bit more detail, any messages or advice you would have for an OT who may want to engage in research, but doesn't have the time or um, access right now to engage in a full-on PhD program or something similar. Thank you, Holly. And, and before I forget, um, anyone interested in being on this podcast, please reach out to practice at caot.ca. We'd love to hear from you. Um, what I would say, and, I, and I'll say this wearing two different hats, but in my role at CAOT, one of the um, most kind of open invitation ways for OTs to get involved in writing pieces and beginning their research journey is really putting in um, submissions for OT Now. And OT Now is just a fanta like fantastic, I was going to say fantabulous, um, 
magazine that reaches a lot of OTs and I send it to a lot of non-OTs that are always impressed with how uh, these editions are put together and it's really a great way to let people know what you're interested in clinically and non-clinically and you can really just share your insights as well as some research so it, it doesn't always require a formal research to be done and OT now is just one example of uh, a magazine or you know a column that you know you could be writing into a newspaper social media is obviously a fantastic way to begin to let people know what you're doing and I think open journal um, open journals in general are another great way to begin to share knowledge that you have and so that that's one way to team up with um, research teams that have similar interests and ideas as you is a, is a good way to learn about the research process if you're not sure how formal you want you want to be. I know that before I decided to work with the First Nation communities I was working with, I had been um, working alongside them for about two or three years with with different members of of each community, and really getting a feel for the concept of research in the community and how open community members were. So the vetting process, it's usually one of quality where it takes more time, but it's really rewarding in the long run. And so I think it's important for you to know what your goals are. Is, is it really to get something out in the next month or two, or are you looking for a kind of a five to seven year process where you're slowly trying to build towards something? And I think that will help determine which way you can get involved. Yeah, absolutely. I was going to say I fully agree with Justine in that um, something like OT Now is a fantastic way, Those that sort of literature with, again, OT Now, columns, social media, where you're putting your ideas out there, some of your perspectives, and that's a fantastic way for then other OTs to see what you're thinking or research teams to kind of see where there, where there's interest and people to reach out and also be interested in. Um, I also honestly think that this obviously depends on where you are, um, but finding out a little bit about any research that is going on in your area a little bit. So um, again, there can, I completely acknowledge that there can be barriers based on where you're practicing, but just finding out a little bit about what research is going on and just reaching out to people who are maybe involved in research that you're interested in and just having a conversation with them and find, finding out what it looks like um, can be incredibly beneficial. And from my perspective, from my experience, obviously I know that that people can be really busy, but researchers love to talk about their research. They do, right? And so reaching out, people will often engage back, right? They want to talk about it. They want to involve people. And so just finding out what it looks like um, in terms of, and if there would be a role for you, I think that's a really good way to start is just ask around and, you know, take your time, find that out. Um, but I've definitely learned over time that asking is a great first step, right? And a lot of the times too, in any sort of like, if any kind of interventional researcher, I know so often there are people who are looking for maybe clinicians to be involved in maybe intervention development or actually implementing an intervention, working with patients or clients and whatnot. A lot of the times researchers are really looking for that. And so just finding out about that too, again, really asking around and reaching out and finding out what sort of research, especially if there's an area that you're passionate about. Awesome. Thank you both for that. I think 
yeah, it, it makes sense. And I think if if there's a timeline, like you said, Justine, I think that was a good point where if it's a shorter timeline and somebody's thinking, OK, if I can write an article or breach a topic, breach a, a subject, that's one thing. And then engaging in a five or 10 year, like a really longer term uh, approach to research than perhaps PhD or a master's if they didn't already do one, something like that would be more of interest to them. So um, I want to thank you both so much for coming on and sharing your thoughts and ideas and reflections. And perhaps if the listeners have questions about research, um, if you are both open to it, maybe providing an email address where they can reach out and ask some questions or connect with you. Um, otherwise, yeah, I just wanted to thank you. And if you have any final thoughts or anything else you'd like to share, you're welcome to at this point. And we'll next time be back with uh, another topic and conversations that matter. Thank you for hosting us, Holly. Yeah, thank you so much for hosting us. And like I said, you know, it never hurts to ask. And if Justine and I are more than happy to answer any questions. And that's the same for any PhD students in occupational therapy. I'm sure they would be happy to answer any questions too, or any recent graduates. So the benefits of social media, right? We get to know who's doing research where and absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much for having us. Awesome. Thanks, Catherine. Thanks, Justine.